Have you ever wondered why certain chapters are included in the Bible? No, I'm not suggesting that you ever questioned their inspiration, but perhaps their inclusion. Nehemiah chapter 3 is one such chapter. After all, you might quite reasonably argue, why does God clutter the biblical text with this meaningless list of names, most of which I cannot pronounce and do not know? Is this historical filler? These people mean nothing to me. I'd like to suggest for you two reasons why I believe Nehemiah 3 is a part of the biblical text. First of all, this chapter tells me that God is interested in people. God's work is not primarily program-oriented, it's person-oriented. God has a program, but his program is always linked with people. The individual is never lost in the crowd. And although these people are not important to you, they are to him. He knows them, every one. They are not simply a part of a large organization with which there is no personal concern. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but the only thing that God will ever rescue from this planet is people. Therefore, if you want a ministry of permanence, you better build into the life of men. That's the only thing that will ever last. But there's a second reason why this is a very important chapter in the Word of God to me. Not only is God interested in people, but he is also interested in the work which these people do. And this is a record of men at work for God. And no one goes unnoticed. In fact, it's very interesting to note the comments, the editorial comments which are added in the section. For example, in verse 5, next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of the Lord. Not only does he include the workers, but also the shirkers, the bricklayer, and the gold bricks. The people who apparently had too much spiritual starch in the diet to bend. Or I read again in verse 20, After him Barak the son of Zabai earnestly repaired another portion. Apparently put everything he had into it. Verse 27, After him the Tekoites repaired another portion over against the great tower. It was not enough for them to complete the assigned section. They did much more. And I'm impressed by the fact that as I studied this portion of the Word of God, 
that the work which people accomplish is of paramount importance to God himself. Nehemiah was located in the plush palace at Pusan. The text says he was cupbearer. This was not an inglorious position of carrying cups around. Xenophon tells us that it was the equivalent of the prime minister. He was the second in command, but he was a man with a dislocated heart. Though he lived in the palace, his heart was back in Jerusalem, and when he received word that the people of God were in reproach and the walls were crumbled and the gates were burned with fire, his heart burned with passion. And even at the risk of his life, for his countenance displayed his heart, he was willing to become involved in the process of solving the problem. And it's a thrilling story of how the work was accomplished. I've entitled this book, Excerpts from the Diary of an Engineer. It's usually impolite to read another's diary, but in this case, God has preserved it for you. And I'd like to suggest for you that woven into the fabric of chapter 3, which I would encourage you to study for yourself, are three crucial concepts, which to me are basic to the whole concept of planning, our subject for today. The first principle I note in this passage is the principle of cooperation. If you examine the passage carefully, you will discover there are three groups of people that Nehemiah was successful in welding into a working force for God. There are, first of all, the priests, even the high priests. Secondly, you will discover the princes went to work, the leaders, the big-time operators. And third, the people. Now, that's a remarkable feat and certainly is a test of this man's great administrative skill. I can almost hear it now. One of the priests might have said, Look, friend, you can't expect me to work on a wall. That's not my gift. I'm paid to preach. I'm paid to take care of the temple and the worship. You can't expect me to get my hands dirty. And I can hear the princess saying, Well, friend, you know, we're the men that call the signals. The rest of the people run the place. So you certainly can't expect us to stoop to this. And I can hear the people saying, Look, what in the world do you think we pay the priests for? That's their job. And I suppose every one of them could have passed the buck to someone else. What you have here is this man, through a process of planning, taking three diverse groups and welding them together into a working force. Now, cooperation always involves a willingness to subsume personal goals under group goals because of a conviction, a conviction that you can do more, and you can do it more effectively together than you can do it alone. May I suggest a study for you that has been very profitable to me? 
I would suggest you study the analogies which God uses with which to communicate his truth. For example, when he wants to teach what it means to live the spiritual life, he uses the analogy of walking, a beautifully expressive term. But when he wants to express what it means to be related together in a common work in the church, he uses the analogy of the body. For the one thing that the body has is cooperation. It is a cooperating organism. And the foot cannot say to the hand, I don't have any need of you. The eye cannot say to another portion of the body, you're not needed. Every portion is needed, and although there are varied parts, they are all working together. There is no strike in the body, no insignificant part. Now, you know we're living in a day when we're enamored of independence, and this has infected the church. Don't tell me what to do. God tells me what to do. And this is a lovely dodge. The interesting thing is that the Scriptures do not teach independence. They teach interdependence. You need me. I need you. We are indispensable to each other. And if one member of the body suffers, the entire body experiences the pain. I think this is so important, particularly in a rapidly growing organization such as Crusade. Because as any organization grows larger, it develops centrifugal forces, with the result that people tend to come off at the rim. And there is a tendency to form groups both within the organization and sometimes without the organization, quite convinced that God is calling us to do something quite different. And it's conceivable this may be true. But in order to accomplish the objectives of a group, there must be a willingness on the part of every member of that group to cooperate as a part of a working team, subsuming their personal desires in order to accomplish the objectives. There is often a loss of the consciousness of common goals within a fast-growing organization. Now, there are two ways to lose a member to any group or to the body. You can lose it by amputation. I can cut off this arm and thus lose it to my body. Or I can lose it by paralysis. So that although it is still a part of the body, it is no longer a functioning part. And I believe the same thing happens in many a fast-growing Christian organization such as that. And as we come together during these days, I think it's well for us to recognize that our first order of business is to plan cooperatively so that we determine what is it that God is calling us to do and then give ourselves wholeheartedly to the doing of that task. There's a second principle I discover in this wonderfully instructive chapter. And that is the principle of coordination. 
You'll chase through the chapter. You will discover 31 times in the chapter you read the little expression, next unto him, next unto him, next unto him. Now get the picture. Here's this gigantic task of rebuilding the city wall. And if we were to take a moment to diagram it, it would look something like this. city roughly was in this shape at that time and located strategically around the city were gates. Nehemiah says our task is to rebuild this wall. Now can you imagine what would happen in the average evangelical organization today? Let's rebuild the wall. Roger. So a group gets over in a corner and says, look men, let's not play it stupid. Friend, that sun gets up, and it's very hot. Let's take the water gate. That's where they transport the water in and out. And we'll have the advantageous position. I think I hear another group saying, well, look, I don't know what gate we're going to work on, but let's not work on the fish gate. Man, I don't want to smell that odor all day long. And then a group of the senior citizens got together and said, Oh, beloved, let's work on the old gate. That's the one that brings back the memories. All the great things happened through that gate. You know what you'd have about what you have in much of the Lord's work today? What I call Operation Rhubarb. very remarkable to see how this man goes into action. The first thing he does is divide this wall up into sections. And he says, look, you people live over here, all right? You families get together and you rebuild this section of the wall. Now, you will notice in every case he gives an assignment for two reasons. First of all, for convenience. That's where you live. Don't have these people building the wall over here. It'll take them a half an hour to get over there. It's convenient for them to build this section. But first of all, that, most of all, that's the area of their concern. Friend, if this is where we're going to live, then we're sure going to build that section of the wall well. Because if the enemy's going to come through, we're mighty sure he's not going to come through in this area. And he assigns this group living over here to build this section, this group here, until he has someone building all around the wall. Now, make no mistake about it. There is a vast difference between cooperation and coordination. Let's suppose we have a football team. They're losing 68 to nothing. And they get back in a huddle and say, hey, man, we need some touchdowns. Let's agree that we're going to get some. And everybody on the team solemnly agrees, declares by putting his blood down on the field. We're going to get touchdowns. Well, the quarterback gets the ball. He's quite convinced that he can probably pull a real quick pass. The end has been waiting all season to run the end-around play. The fullback has always been convinced that it's right through the center. If you go through the center long enough, hard enough, making three, four, five yards at a time, you always get there. And a halfback, he's got a reverse play that he's trying to t dying to try on for sides. Guess how many touchdowns? we're going to make. 
You know, the same thing happens in a lot of God's work. We're cooperating together. We're agreed this is what we're going to do. We're going to reach this generation for Jesus Christ. But there is not adequate coordination in order to accomplish the task. To me, in terms of planning, the greatest New Testament doctrine is the doctrine of spiritual gifts. And as I study this doctrine, I find there is a threefold responsibility. There is, first of all, the responsibility of discovering gifts. There is, secondly, the responsibility of developing gifts. And there is, third, the responsibility of deploying the gifts. Now, to me, the great need of the hour in crusade is, first of all, the need to discover the gifted men that God has given to this organization. There is a need for identifying the people who are highly infectious in this organization. There is also the need for the development of those gifts. No gift comes full-blown. Most gifts are discovered in the process of usage. And a man in the Dallas area some time ago, we were launching a home Bible class program, and I said to him, hey, Clark, would you teach one of these classes? Oh, he said, Hendricks, I don't have the gift of teaching. I said, how do you know? Oh, I just know. Well, I said, did God let a sheet down out of heaven one night and tell you this? No, no. I just don't have that gift. I said, let me ask you one question, Clark. Have you ever taught? No, he said, I've never taught. I said, then, friend, don't tell me you don't have the gift of teaching. Because you will never discover whether you have this gift or not until you get involved in the process of teaching. That's why Peter said, as you have received the gift, so use it. Exercise it. And it's in the process of exercising you not only discover it, but that you develop it. Now, if I were to tell Clark six years ago, Clark, you have the gift of teaching, he would have said to me, Hendricks, I know one gift you don't have, and that's the gift of prophecy. <laughs> Not me. But as far as I am concerned, if I want my students to see effective teaching in action, I will send them to watch this man who five years ago was quite convinced he did not have this gift. And I think the finest way of ruining an individual, let's say a man who's very effective on the campus, is often to put him behind a desk. Or conversely, a man who is extremely effective with administrative skills can get a powerful amount of work done and you put him out on a campus and he's a deadhead. He cannot reproduce. There's another individual who can do a fabulous job on a local campus working with people, but he's not necessarily equipped to train others. I think there are many times when we assume that because a man has a gift in a given area, that he can therefore work everywhere with that gift. And I do not believe this is right. There are many of you who have the gift of teaching and who are far more effective at teaching on a university campus than most of my colleagues at the seminary who have the gift of teaching, but who are teaching at a particular level, and to meet a particular need. I don't think that everyone is necessarily gifted to work on a Berkeley, that everyone is necessarily gifted to work with the intellectual, that everyone is necessarily gifted to work with the military men. And I think the first task of an organization is to find out not where is the right man, but where is the right gift resident in a man and displayed in his action 
where we can place him so that we will derive maximal value from the gifts God has given him. But there's a third principle that I find in this passage that to me is basic to all planning. Not only cooperation, not only coordination, but also completion. Forty-one times over in this text, I read, they repaired, they repaired, they repaired. It's the completed action of the verb. They finished the job. How refreshing in the age of the goof-off and the cop-out to see people who were given a task by God and who stuck with it until it was completed. I was reading this morning in Luke chapter 14. And in verse 28 you read, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he have wherewith to complete it? Lest happily, when he hath laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all the behold begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build, but was not able to finish. There are two works that are contrasted. There is, first of all, the work of God, and there is, secondly, the work of man. And the work of man always has the mark of incompletion. Look at the Tower of Babel. They decided, let's build a tower unto God so that we won't be scattered. And God comes down, confuses the language, and they are scattered abroad, and the text says they left off building the city. It's a monument to the characteristic of man's work. It is always marked by incompletion. But when God starts a work, he completes it. Jesus Christ could cry on the cross even in the midst of what humanly appeared to be tragedy. It is finished. The Apostle Paul could lay down his torch and say, I have finished the work that God gave me to do. That did not mean there was nothing else to be done. But he finished the part that God had given him in that great task of reaching the world for Christ. I think that many times the reason we feel we're doing so well is that we really don't know what we're doing. We really don't know where we're going. And you always appear to have tremendous accomplishments when you really are not clear of your goals. It's only when you bring your goal into clear-cut focus that you can ever say, we finish the task that God has given us to do. Talking to a thoughtful businessman some time ago, he said to me, Hendricks, in my judgment, the average evangelical church is doomed to mediocrity. Well, I said, friend, that's an inflammatory statement. He said, I know it is, but I believe it. I said, why? He said, because I believe the average evangelical church does not plan to be in business very long. It was hard to choke down, but I'm absolutely convinced he's right. I asked a pastor some time ago, Pastor, what are you planning to do for the next ten years? Next ten years, Hendricks. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do next Sunday. <laughs> and I appreciated his honesty. In other words, there must be a plan to complete the task, or the task will never be completed. It's certainly better to fail having tried than never having tried at all for lack of any clear-cut plan. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 15, I read a thrilling statement. 
So the wall was finished. And the twenty and fifth day of the month, Elul, in fifty and two days. A phenomenal feat, even from an engineering point of view. And despite overwhelming opposition in route, they had everything in the book thrown at them, both without and within. And it came to pass, when all our enemies heard thereof, that all the nations that were around us feared and were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. My friends, that's the key to a completed task. The work wrought by our God. God will not share His glory with another. And as long as Campus Crusades continue, Crusade continues to be committed to glorifying God, it will not only continue to exist, but the blessing of God will be upon it. And the moment you continue to glorify yourself or your program or your methods or your success, we will conduct a funeral for the organization, and you won't have the distinction of being the first one to have gone down in tragic history. One of my favorite conductors was Toscanini. I think I could watch for hours that brilliant conductor in action. I had a friend who secured passes for me so that I would go to New York and watch him by the hour in his tremendous skill. There ever was a man who had charismatic gifts in terms of music, this was the man. And I remember a member of the orchestra describing for me one of his last performances. It was Beethoven's Ninth. He performed it with the New York Philharmonic. The greatest performance was not the performance before the audience. It was one of the final rehearsals with the orchestra. And he said it seemed as if the orchestra was absolutely one with its leader. They were so lost in it, they forgot everything except the performance. When they got through, they recognized the performance was so profound that almost spontaneously these men and women in the orchestra stood to their feet and gave this man a thunderous ovation. You know, Toscanini was a very small man. And I can still hear this man describing him as he was standing up with his little podium, banging it on the, uh, with his little stick, banging it on the podium, trying to get the attention of the audience and get them to be quiet. And for five solid minutes, all they did was roar and clap and cheer. When he finally got them under control, he leaned over the podium and he said, Gentlemen, it's not me! It's Beethoven! You know, I really believe, ladies and gentlemen, this will be the heart of the ministry of crusade if this is the tool God is pleased to use in our generation. It's not you. It's God. But God performs the miracle of the ministry and He employs human instrumentality that He brings together to work as a team cooperatively, to work coordinatively in terms of the gifts that he has given, and to plan in terms of completing the tasks that God has given you to do.
Our Father, how wonderful it is to turn to Thy Word, constantly the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. Forgive us for such superficial exposure. Forgive us for sitting in judgment as to why you place in the text what you have chosen to put there and preserve there. We pray, our Father, that right at the outset of this conference we shall sense in a very unique way that the planning that is done will be ultimately the planning of God working through His servant, determined for nothing except His glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.